Boyfriend Sports Show. I'm Maeve, and this week, senior writer for Sports Illustrated's Monday Morning Quarterback, Jenny Vrentas, joins us for a wide-ranging conversation on the NFL. We're talking everything from health and safety to the NFL's recent efforts to promote women, how much to weigh the character of a player, why Jenny still gets asked how she got into sports reporting, and so much more. But first, it's time for This Week in Sports. It's a very quick recap today since there's so much good stuff to get to with Jenny. So without further ado, the Minnesota Gophers are once again the NCAA women's hockey champs. They've won their fourth title in five years. They defeated the Boston College Eagles 3-1 to in an especially tough loss for the Eagles, who were one game away from a perfect season, a feat that the Gophers had achieved in 2013. The semifinal game between Minnesota and Wisconsin had grabbed the attention of Minnesota Governor Mark Dayton when he couldn't watch his beloved hockey on TV. He publicly criticized CBS, who had the broadcasting rights for not allowing local affiliates to air the game live, although they said that they were willing. But flash forward a couple days, and even in a championship match with two teams at the height of their play, a long-standing rivalry, and the chance at a perfect season, CBS delayed airing the match until about a week after it was played. Hopefully, the bright side to all of this is that with the NWHL coming back for a second season and 20 seniors already drafted, hockey careers won't have to end too early. And finally, the UConn Huskies continue to dominate the women's college basketball tournament. They've defeated all of their opponents so far by at least 20 points. To no one's surprise, they've made it to the Final Four, and they'll face off against Oregon State on April 3rd. Rounding out the Final Four are Syracuse and Washington, but since the tournament is still ongoing, we'll save our discussion for next episode when everything is said and done, but for now, you can watch both of these games and the championship on ESPN. Okay, that's it for this week in sports. And when we get back, very, very excited to talk with Jenny. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I am so pleased to be welcoming Jenny Ventus to Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show. Jenny writes for Sports Illustrated's Monday Morning Quarterback, and she covers all things NFL. She previously covered the Jets and Giants for the New Jersey Star-Ledger. She's also a lifetime Penn State fan, uh, not to mention a graduate as well. So Jenny, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be on. All right, so I want to start off talking a little bit about questions. You and I got in touch somewhat circuitously because of an article that you wrote about the interview process for NFL head coaches. And I shared this article with one of my podcasting friends because we're always really interested in what makes a good question. And as a journalist, I imagine that that's important to you as well. So to start off, what makes a good question to you? I think the best questions are the ones where you kind of can get the person out of scripted mode. And so I think a lot of times um, in this business as a reporter where you're interviewing athletes who've been prepared for interviews and the same goes for, you know, NFL teams when they're interviewing these guys at the combine or interviewing head coach candidates or free agents, everyone is so well prepared because it's, you know, your answers kind of help determine where your career goes, how much money you'll make. <laughs> like they're, they're making an investment in these guys and, you know, everyone's been so well prepared for interviews, whether it's with teams or the media, that a lot of answers are scripted. So the way you ask questions or the way you carry on a dialogue is really important. Um, Sort of getting them comfortable and out of that mode where they feel like they can give scripted answers and kind of see what they're really about. I mean, I think a lot of times when I do interviews, um, you know, I try to spend some time with the person in a if, if, you know, if the situation allows, but you try to spend some time with them. So it's not just a and a session. And, and usually sure. the most revealing things they say are just kind of things that, you know, it's not responses to carefully curated questions. It's sort of what they say in conversation. Right. Is there, is there a, a, a interview subject or a moment or a story where you feel like, you did that really well and your reporting was much better for it? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think 
a lot of things we try to do at the MMQB is experiential things. So you try to experience something with the player. One that I did early when the site was launched was what's an ACL surgery like? So rather than a player telling you, you know, it was a a tough day of my life and I'm glad I got through it. You know, we tried to be there with them while they were going through it. So you hear them, you know, as they're preparing the knee and they're checking, okay, it's the left knee, right? And they ask the player like several times, yes, it's the left (laughs) knee, just to make sure they're not cutting open the wrong knee or, or, you know, what they say when they wake up. Um, How does the knee feel? Uh, What's the first day of rehab like? So that's an example of like, you're not necessarily even asking any questions. You're just sort of observing them and seeing what they say. And through that, you sort of understand what they're going through in that moment and, and what that what that process is like. That's one example. I'm trying to think of a couple other ones, but that's <laughs> the one that kind of comes. I mean, the the other one, I guess, is I, I sat in on a, a, a combine interview um, in that situation. So they spent the first six minutes and they're grilling the player about his background, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And they know that these players come in with scripted answers and you can tell they have a spiel prepared. What's your family like? They focus on the good right. stuff. And then they sort of went through tape with them. So I feel like that was sort of a reminder of like, okay, the real stuff is past the Q and a session. And then they're going through film with the guy and they can see how does he respond to what's his recall? Like, you know, yeah. you know what, um, when you put a play on the screen, can you describe exactly what happened? So that was sort of a good reminder of like, getting the guy in like a real life setting where he's just kind of doing his job sort of in front of you. That's when you get the best stuff. Well, I'm really glad that you brought up that article about interviewing quarterbacks at the combine because it leads to my next question about questions. (laughs) So I recently was at South by Southwest and I went to a panel uh, that Katie Nolan was moderating and it was called, Do Great Athletes Have to Be Good People? And one of the panelists was Kevin Demoff, who's the COO of the Rams. And they were talking about players' character and how that's a factor for consideration. And he mentioned these 15-minute combine interviews as one example of how teams get a feel for, for a player's character. I remember thinking at this panel, like, 15 minutes? Like, that's what you're going off of for, for a guy's entire character? So I was wondering kind of what your take on this was after observing a whole day of these interviews at the Combine. Do you think that they're taking character into account in a good relative balance to their athletic performance? Yeah, it sounds like a really interesting panel that you attended because that's, I mean, it's such a a great question nowadays, right? Because we see these teams picking guys and there's questionable issues in the past. And the, the biggest question these days really is, is not so much, are they a good person, but will they avoid off the field incidents long enough for us to kind of maximize their career without them having to leave the field? So, I mean, that really seems to be what teams are evaluating, but you know, the 15 minute period is so fast. Like that was probably my biggest takeaway. Like by the time you go in the room, it feels like you're leaving right away. What you're trying to do in that setting is judge character through the way the guy responds. And that might be if there's a guy that has a lot of off the field issues, teams will probably spend 15 minutes just asking him about that. And in most cases, they go into it knowing the details of whether it's a police incident or something that happened with the coach. The scouts have been to the colleges. They've interviewed everyone. Most of the time, they go into the situation knowing all the specifics. But they want to mm-hmm. see how the guy handles it. What is he going to say about it? Is you know, If it was an incident with a coach, does he throw the coach under the bus? If it was a off the field incident, does he, you know own up to it and take responsibility. And again, those things can be scripted. Their agents have told them <laughs> what to say. Um, right. But I guess, you know, you're, you're kind of getting a sense, um, you know, are they squirming? Do they look you in the eye? And that is not always the best judge of character. I mean, certainly we've seen, we saw with Johnny Manziel. I mean, he had a yeah. great agent in the sense of, man, that agent prepared him well and convinced, you know, helped Johnny convince teams that, he was on the right path and worth the investment. And it all, you know, it all turned out to be not the case, but you know, it's 15 minutes with anyone is not really enough to know fully, (laughs) I think, but you you try to use it as one data point and you try to get the most out of it. And, you know, I think also, you know, you you have to talk to a variety of people and that kind of came up last year with Jameis Winston was, you know, the Buccaneers not talking to Erica Kinsman, you know, his accuser. And, 
obviously you could make arguments for both sides, but it seems hard to understand why you wouldn't want to get the facts from all perspectives. Like I would think in that situation, you're investing in this guy, you're, you're devoting all these resources. Um, you're taking, you know, you're, you're putting your organization's reputation at risk by taking a guy that has, you know, allegations in his background. I would think you'd want to talk to her. I mean, I felt strongly about that then. And I still do. Well, I think that this brings up sort of the ultimate question about this, which is like, does it actually matter? If they're a talented player, if they're going to, you know, win you lots of games, does the character thing even factor into the equation? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, the answer to that question is, well, it's only started to matter more now that there are slightly stronger consequences, right? They know that there's a stricter personal conduct policy that will take these players off the field for longer periods of time. Without that, it wouldn't matter more right now. And, you know, it's like the NFL had a new policy this year that they weren't inviting um, any players to the combine who were convicted of a, of a, you know, a violent crime in their past. And, and I think that's a, that's a good step because, you know, it takes them off that national stage but then again, you know, there's pro days and you still want to draft the guy, you're going to draft him. And it seems like a lot of times we focus in on, you know, legal issues in these guys pass and they come into the NFL, they play well, the distance grows longer between things that happen in college and we sort of forget about it over time. And that's not to yeah. say that guys don't deserve second chances. And that's not to say that every situation is the same, but you know, it's a business and they are making investments in this guy and their, their biggest concern is protecting that investment. And so, you know, that's always going to be the number one concern. So when penalties get harsher, they have more of a concern about it, but sort of, uh, it's kind of a, a tough, tough way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, I think that the second chances thing is also a really kind of, I don't know, tricky puzzle to figure out Mm -hmm. because on the one hand, you know, Ray Rice does what he did he gets caught for it in a really big, big way. He sort of becomes like the whipping boy for the NFL having to completely restructure how it's going to handle these types of incidents. But, you know, he makes a public apology. He does, you know, domestic violence outreach. By all accounts, he really has been trying to make amends. Does he get a second chance at the same time that there are you know, how many like hundreds of guys who want that first chance and who want that first opportunity and are like working their asses off too to, to try to make it. Yeah. And you're right. And that, that, that the hard part about second chances is there's so much gray area and every case is different. So, you know, you can believe in second chances, but then there's some guys, you know, you look at the situations and it's, you know, it's hard to understand them getting a second chance. There's other guys you can see where, okay, maybe they're on the right track, maybe they deserve it. And that's, that's where the tricky part comes in. Of, and, and that's what I think it, it's impossible to ever sort of make it a scientific thing of assessing who deserves a second chance and when should they get it. That's something you're, that's a code you're never really going to crack. I mean, with Ray Rice, I think his second chance was doomed because he was an aging running back whose production was on the decline and there was a video. Those are two things that I just feel like he was never going to surmount. And I I think people in the domestic violence community would have liked to see him have a second chance because, or in the awareness community, the domestic violence Mm -hmm. awareness community, because I think they felt like having there be no path back into, you know, regular life or the career Mm -hmm. you had beforehand, that is not necessarily helpful. But I just think that in that case, the, the actual, the absolute value of what he did was not necessarily worse than other guys who have gotten second chances, but it was on video and the diminishing level of his play was just not enough for teams to say, let's give him a second chance. Yeah. I mean, and the other thing that I think about is comparing kind of NFL players to other pros like, you know, Chapman, the Yankees pitcher who is taking his suspension and is going to be back after 30 games. I guess my question is like, why is the NFL, the league that's sort of like setting these standards? Yeah, I think there's there's probably a couple things that come into play. I mean, one is with any NFL suspension, it's it, it's so different from other sports because there's only 16 games. Every game right. seems like a right. huge matter in terms of the 
prognosis for your season. I think the other thing is, you know, the NFL is, is the biggest stage, obviously it's the biggest sport in America. Um, it's the most popular sports league. The most people watch it. Um, most people know the players. It's the most popular fantasy sports league. So people feel like they know the players more. And then I think the other thing is, you know, it just feels as though public trust in the NFL is the lowest out of any of the sports leagues. And Oh, definitely. You know, it's that's for a lot of reasons. I think that's health and safety. I mean, hockey is also a dangerous sport. And, you know, but the NFL, because of the way it mishandled health and safety concerns in the past, has completely lost public right. trust on that front. And that's carried into other fronts. And so I just think there's this skepticism that, oh, the, the big bad league offices is in it for money and they're getting everything wrong. That is the public perception. And it doesn't seem to matter because people still love the sport. They love the game. Nothing at this point has eroded that at all. But I do think that out of all the major sports leagues, there's the least confidence that the NFL would get something right when it comes to off the field issues. I don't know. It just seems like if you're the NFL and you have like more money than God and you have all of these resources at your disposal I don't know, just like why there wasn't a better set of policies in place to begin with. It all just seems so like hazy to me. When you are so popular and you, you know, nothing will chip away at that prop popularity. Um, it's easier to be reactive rather than proactive, right? There has been a, a little bit of a shift. I mean, the, the NFL just kind of changed its leadership in terms of the public relations department and we were seeing it yeah. today with the health and safety issue. Now, it, it not, it's not necessarily being pro, I wouldn't consider this an example of them being proactive. However, they are um, with the New York Times report coming out yeah. saying that they, you know, kind of doctor the, the NFL doctored some of the concussion numbers and in, uh, in their earlier studies. The NFL came out with, you know, thousand two 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 responses. One that was over a thousand words, one that was over two or two thousand words. So now they're kind of saying, We've been a punching bag for so long, we're not gonna sit idly by. Like if you come at us, we're firing back. So that's a little bit of a shift in approach. And I'm curious how, you know, how that's going to play out kind of moving forward, whether it's health and safety or off the field questions, domestic violence, things like that. They're being a lot more like they're going to come at news outlets that come after them. And I think that part of that is to change the perception of the, you know, the fact that there's no public trust in the league. Right. Well, on the health and safety front, now that you bring it up, like, do you think that there are things within the game that the NFL can do? Like, I know that they just came out with their new rules release and they've made chop blocks illegal, but there's always been this question of like, why doesn't the NFL adopt college rules um, in terms of, uh, head injuries and like hitting, leading with your head, mm-hmm. you know, like, are there still concrete things that you could change about the rules of the game itself that would kind of decrease the risk or the harm to players? Yeah. You know, I, what I will say is, you know, what, what the NFL is, is they're kind of in this situation now where they, they cannot fully outrun their past. So the sins of the nineties and two thousands are, are sticking with them. So I do feel like at this point in time, they're making substantial efforts to change the culture, to um, try to figure out technology that'll make the game safer by investing money into that. Um, they're they're considering all the rule changes you can consider. I mean, I think the the automatic ejection thing for leading with your helmet, I mean, that is something that's been discussed. I, I have a hard time seeing the NFL adopting it at this point, and I don't think that's for turning a, a blind eye to player safety. I just, th- those hits can kind of be, it can kind of be fuzzy. And I think the idea of uh, ejecting a guy, um, mm-hmm. you know, but that is something I think that will continue coming up. I mean, I, I will say that the, uh, the, the idea of ejecting the guy with, you know, two, uh, uh, unsportsmanlike conduct, I think that could have been done more in the name of player safety than it was rather than it being taunting or mm-hmm. um, things like that. That should have been, I think that was their opportunity to have it be the sort of not the one in the ejection, but the two and then the ejection. And then you kind of have, I liked that idea of, you know, uh, unnecessary roughness and hitting, leaning with your mm-hmm. helmet. I liked the idea of incorporating player safety into that role. That's more important than sportsmanship right now. So I think right. that was a big miss. But I will, especially when sportsmanship in the NFL is like so loosely defined. When like dancing is getting <laughs> Cam Newton in trouble, like what? It's so true. And you know, that's yeah. I mean, that is going to be one tough 
thing to kind of legislate because, I mean, there's taunting that goes on in every play. So it's basically taunting that the referee happens to hear or see. I mean, right. I, I disagree with the way their approach to that rule. But I will say for the most part, right now at least, the NFL is trying to do everything to maximize the safety of the game. I mean, a lot of that's self-preservation, sure. But I, I do think they are taking measures. It's just the problem is there are certain hurdles that you're never going to overcome. Like, the game is a dangerous game. You're never going to be able yeah. to stop the brain from sloshing around in the skull and causing concussions. I mean, no helmet, no technology will be able to prevent that. So, you know, I just think it's getting to the point where you fully understand the risk and are fully presenting the risk. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's still a kind of a, a work in progress in terms of understanding the science behind head injuries and what that yeah. means for long-term health. I mean, I even think beyond head injuries and just any type of injury that you can sustain during a football game, if you're an elite football player, you've had like the best coaching, the best training, the best dietary program, the best like whatever for since you were like in high school, right? Mm -hmm. You've just been like built for this. Do you think that, do you think that like players strength, just brute strength is just outpacing like the structure of the game? Yeah. Well, I I think that's definitely true. I mean, the, the amount of pressure that you're putting on joints now, um, the human body is kind of overloaded. I mean, I think that is certainly a factor. Um, guys are, you know, bigger, faster, stronger, right? But I think that's true. I mean, collisions are more intense and um, your, you know, the torque that is on your knee is greater. So we're really m- watching, kind of see the game maximize itself in, in that regard, which on the other token causes more safety concerns. So it's, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's hard to know because, you know, for all the prognosticating of what's going to happen and it's football on the decline, I mean, uh, we see it at this point. Guys get injured. There's a hundreds of other guys waiting to take their place. So yeah. it's hard at this point to see a decline. Um, and, you know, I think the question is, will the shifts kind of continue to um, I mean, well, the socioeconomic shift is probably yeah. what's going. We're going to see more of where people who don't have to play the game um, or aren't lured by the potential life-changing money of the game will, will choose not to play it. Which is really interesting to think of, kind of this pipeline issue when you compare it to the other major sports, where there's been a trend recently. Uh, you know, like only people who basically like have the money and have the presence to be like taking their kid to every single AAU basketball game, to every single like club travel, soccer game, baseball game, whatever, that like kids are becoming so specialized so early that in the other sports, there's a concern that like the doors are just going to be closed to kids who don't have those types of resources. But in the NFL, this like danger safety factor seems to be like posing the opposite problem. Right, right. Yeah, it is different. That's that's true. Um, it's sort of the socioeconomic divide is it's the opposite direction in football, right? As some of these other sports like ice hockey, where you have to be able yeah. to afford the equipment and to be on the elite circuit and everything. I mean, I think that is probably what we're going to see. I mean, I think the game is going to evolve. We're already seeing the safety of the game evolve. Or, or, or the, the way the game looks evolve. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if we're going to get to a place where it's seven on seven and it's, you know, speed <laughs> skill football. Right. I mean, I guess that's possible, but. I don't know. I just live with this fear that like one day somebody's going to get killed on national television playing football. Like their spine is just going to get snapped or something and it's just going to be instant and like terrible. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no denying that, like, when, when you cover the sport and you watch some of these hits, or if you're watching at home and you watch some of these hits, I mean, it's brutal. And then, you know, whatever you see on TV or in the press box, then, you you know, if you're ever on the sideline of a game, it's, it's, it's even more faster and collisions are even yeah. harder than you could even imagine, right? So, you know, it's, it's scary to watch. I mean, there are times when you watch games and, you know, uh... I think like the first time I saw a player, you know, down on the field where they had to bring out a stretcher for him, I was at Penn State and the quarterback at the time, Michael Robinson, you know, got, got hit helmet to helmet at Wisconsin and they had to cut his jersey off him. And I just remember like the quiet and, you know, it was, a they, Penn State was on the road, but the whole, the whole stadium at Wisconsin was hushed. Mm-hmm. And just that 
scary feeling of like, what's going to happen? What are his parents thinking? And, you know, ever since then, I mean, you just see more and more of them and it's, it never gets any less scary. Yeah. Have you ever had a moment where you were just like, I don't know if I can keep covering this or I don't know if I can like add to the attention that this all gets? It is kind of a a difficult question to consider because it's your livelihood and you're writing about the sport. Um, There are times when you become a little disillusioned. I mean, just looking at the, whether it's the science side of it or whether it's, you know, some of the off field incidents and seeing sort of the response, the Greg Hardy stuff with the Cowboys last year was sort of, I mean, that's one example of when you just really kind of grow disillusioned in terms of like, what am I writing about? And was this all, what is this all about? But I mean, I do see both sides of it. I mean, I don't think that football is the only dangerous sport. I don't think that everyone who plays will have long-term issues, but that doesn't mean that it's any less when people do. And that doesn't mean, you know, that everyone who has long-term cognitive issues is any less jarring or doesn't leave you with a pit in your stomach because it does. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of really beautiful things about the game. There's a lot of, um, you know, I think when you, you know, you hear people talking about, you know, how being involved with the sports changed their life. I mean, that's the flip side of it. And I guess it sounds cliched, but I I think it's true. I mean, you, you spend your time around football lifers and they have these great stories and, you know, they've built a life around the sport. I mean, that's, that's pretty awesome to hear too. So I, I guess I'm able to see both sides of it and I guess you have to. Yeah, I mean, I totally get it. It's like whenever there's sort of switching gears a little bit to, you know, women in the NFL in particular, especially in the last couple of seasons. And, you know, the sort of like knee jerk reaction is like, well, maybe I should just stop watching. Maybe I just shouldn't be like a fan. Maybe I shouldn't be giving like eyeballs to the advertisers to sell this product. But I think that that is not a realistic option because football in America is so much bigger than just a game. It's like you get together every Sunday with your friends, your family. It's like people's, it's people's time. It's people's traditions. It's people's like way of connecting between generations, between friends, whatever. And to just like, I mean, the second, the, so that's the first part of it to me is like, you can't just stop doing something that is so much more than a sport. But the second part of it and like the the woman specific part of it is kind of like, well, if I'm not here and if I'm not raising these questions and if I'm not like thinking critically about this, then like who will, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I think I think those are two. Um, I think those are two really good points. I mean, you know, it's it's not the only industry in the world where, you know, there's a handful of people that do things that you disagree with. And, you know, it's. It's not the only, I mean, it's not the only big business where the bottom line is important, right? But I mean, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I, there's a lot of things that I, I really enjoy, like the ability to tell certain stories and certain life experiences and the way people are relate and drawn to, are drawn to sports that, you know, that, that is sort of one of the few avenues in which you can write these stories that have this mass appeal and kind of share um, things about certain issues or life experiences. I mean, that's the, the upside to it. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of that, that some people are of the opinion that like, you know, oh, sports is an escape for me. Sports is entertainment. And I mean, to me, like, yeah, I obviously enjoy watching sports and it's entertaining, but at the same time, like sports is a product of our society and it's something that we've made. And so of course it reflects like the best and the worst of us. And yeah. But that but like that also means that it doesn't like it doesn't take a break for me. It doesn't live like separately from racism and sexism and like socioeconomic issues and you know health and safety issues and like all these other things. And I also think about a lot that like if you have a platform that has people so invested, is there something else you want to be doing with that? It, it, it's true the, the the reach of the NFL is is still sort of hard to comprehend at times, I think, um, you know, there's, there's a really great side that you get to see and experience. And I think, you know, like you learn so much about, you know, like we did a story on the Washington team name. And so, okay, as an NFL reporter, um, my boss said, 
why don't we go to Native American reservations and see how they feel about the team name? So yeah. that was a really eye-opening experience for me. First of all, it gave me a better understanding of the Native American perspective of life overall. Like just mm-hmm. sort of driving through, I went to um, an Apache reservation in Eastern Arizona and driving there, there was this giant copper mine. And it was, I mean, it was cut into the side of the mountain. I mean, it was, first of all, it was beautiful. It was breathtaking, but it was just, and just kind of this huge copper mine. So I get to the reservation mm-hmm. where, and where the reservation is, it's deserted land, lots of tumbleweed, like there's not much going on. So I come, you know, come to find out, of course, that the copper mine had, had been part of the Native American land. And because it was useful to the white settlers, it was taken away from them. And so they were left mm-hmm. on the land, which they couldn't, they couldn't mine. They couldn't, there was no usefulness to the land. That's why they were left with it. So, I mean, that's not has nothing to do with the team name, but I mean, it, it does on one level because then you start talking to them about how they feel about the Washington team name. And you understand that it doesn't resonate with everybody. Certainly does not. I mean, right. Right. some, there are a lot of the leaders, I mean, they're focused on other issues and people don't think about football, but there are people who it really does resonate a lot with. And they have personal stories of in the border town to the reservation being called Redskins and being denied service at the restaurant, you know, as like in the 1990s, you know what I mean? So to actually be able to go to a reservation and talk to people and hear like their experiences and their stories was very eye-opening and then to be able to share that with readers that was something that kind of made me think about something different through sports no I think that that's a really good example of shifting perspectives and it can introduce you to new people and places and you know stories that you wouldn't think about if you weren't otherwise interested in sports you know yeah it's very unifying actually I feel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I feel like we just got very sentimental for, for a very long time there. Um, but it was nice. I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> okay. But I do want to kind of go back to this issue of the NFL and women. We reviewed in detail on the show some of the various incidents over the past couple seasons that have led to what feels like kind of a shift in attitude between women and the sport and you know, feeling like there are issues that need to be addressed and that to some extent they're getting addressed. For instance, the NFL has created a new VP of social responsibility. It's reworked its player conduct policies. Um, Most recently, the league announced it had a women's summit earlier this year, and it announced that it was going to institute uh, a Rooney rule for women. And for listeners who may not know, the original Rooney rule Uh, was instituted in 2003, and it requires that any open head coaching position, uh, a minority candidate must also be interviewed. So the Rooney Rule for Women is going to make a uh, require a female candidate to be interviewed for any open executive position in the league office. So as somebody who, you know, lives very closely next to football, what's your take on these recent efforts do you think that any are stronger, or weaker than others? And do you think that any of this will actually lead to sort of tangible improvements? Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's a million dollar question, right? Like, you know, you can make rules and, and make initiatives, but w- what is the change that actually comes of it? I think that all of that, ha- that happened, that all of the scrutiny on the league's handling of domestic violence issues and the realization that so many of these decisions were being made without women at the table that sort of led to all these other efforts. And so, you know, I think the Rooney rule, which came sort of, what is it a year and a half after the Ray Rice incident that, but that was an outgrowth of the attention that was put on the issues during the 2014 football season. So anytime you have a rule, it's always a double-edged sword. And I Mm -hmm. talked to Katie Blackburn, who's probably one of the most powerful women in the NFL that no one really talks about because she's behind the scenes. She's the daughter of Bengals owner, Mike Brown, but she's effectively running the day-to-day operations of the team. I asked her about the Rooney rule and she said, I, I of course support the idea behind it, but you know, I always hate the idea that we need a role for those things, which I think you would hear from minority coaches as well. So I guess I would say with that is you know, when the, when they made the Rooney, when they applied it to women, I had a couple coaches that I know, minority coaches say to me, 
if it hasn't worked for minorities, what makes you think, you know, what makes them think it'll work right. for women? And I think that's a right. valid question. Now, the numbers of getting more minority coaches into head coaching role, roles has certainly improved with the Rooney Rule. And I think, you know, you, you hear coaches interview, um, they get into the interview room, they open some eyes around the league, coaches who may not otherwise not have been interviewed. But the problem is sort of getting them up to that level at which they can be interviewed. So the promotion level from assistant coach to coordinator, that still hasn't been improved. You know, block coaches are half as likely with the same amount of experience to get coordinator positions. And that's ultimately feeding in the head coach and, you know, head coach positions. And I think we're going to see the same thing with the Rooney rule for women is, you know, how are we going to have an executive vice president of football operations who's a woman when you know, she hasn't necessarily been able to climb the ranks, whether it's with the team, the coaching ranks, the scouting ranks. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the other thing, yeah. you know, I think uh, what was controversial about the rules was why is it not being applied to NFL teams? And I, I sort of actually felt that I was kind of glad that it wasn't at this point in time, because if you had to say that a woman had to be interviewed for every NFL head coach and general manager opening – you would know at this point in time, there just aren't enough women in the pipeline for those to be legitimate interviews. And it would be a mockery of the rule at this point in time, right? But at least you're not saying like, okay, let's interview a woman for head coach when there's the first full-time female coach was just hired last year. You just can't do that. So I didn't really have a problem with that side of it. But I just think every time there's a rule for something, you wonder why does there have to be a rule? But then I guess, you know, if you don't make a rule, then there's not going to be change. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the distinction between the league and the teams is a really interesting one. When I was reading about all this, something that I didn't know is that the NFL actually, the NFL league offices actually have like definitely not gender parity, but higher percentages of women working at, at pretty senior roles than I expected. There are 31 women in the NFL at the VP level or above and then uh, 30% of league office employees are women and uh, almost 27% of all VPs are women. So that surprised me, actually. I was like, well, that's not terrible. Like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think that this issue about like the team level stuff is an interesting one. You know, obviously, like coaching positions aside, teams still need GMs. They still need, you know, presidents and CEOs and COOs and CFOs and all of the O's that there possibly can be. The gap in the NFL is always going to be between, you know, the jobs that are considered football jobs and then the other jobs, right? So, like, no matter what the numbers say, I think I'm always going to be have an eye on how many women are on the football operations side of things. Yeah, well, I mean, you sort of bring up two things in my mind. First is, you know, is the problem really going to be like making the distinction between, you know, being able to coach doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have NFL player experience. Because I feel like that's the argument that's so often thrown against women in coaching positions. It's like, well, they've never played the game. It's like, well, how many of the coaches have actually like played at the NFL level, you know? Exactly. But then the second part of it is like, and I don't mean any disrespect to the female coaches who have been hired, but like when Jen Welcher was hired, I remember that that headline was like Cardinals hire first female coach. And it's like, well, kind of, I mean, she was given basically a tryout for their summer preseason. She wasn't a full-time employee, but the headline would have made you think that like, wow, we've made such a huge step. And it's a huge step for her. You know, she's like worked her way up to that point in her career for this perception of like women in coaching. Do you think that sort of the media presentation is like misleading in in how far the accomplishments have gone? Totally. I mean, you got to applaud the Cardinals. Bruce Arians gave her an opportunity. And, you know, the same thing with Sarah Thomas. Okay, first female NFL referee. And she sort of just wanted to be known as any other referee. And I get it. Like, you have to mark the milestones. And I think that's important. But I think a lot of women in these roles sort of, they don't like the novelty side of it because they feel like that they're just trying not to be different, right? They want to be known for their job. And all the attention sort of makes them feel different. I mean, I get all the time, like, you know, you're a female sports writer, female NFL writer. And I just, you know, 
there are yeah. more of us than there are NFL coaches for sure, uh, female NFL <laughs> coaches. But it never lessens, yeah. and it's always, why did you get into the business? And oh, you know, even if someone's like offering you you know, praise or whatever. They always say like, oh, you know, great female sports writer. It's like, well, no, no one wants to be a great female sports writer. You want to be a great sports writer. It's completely different, you know? Yeah, totally. And, you know, this brings up another good question, which I'd be interested in your answer. I think that there's always sort of this like negotiation between do you want to talk about being a woman in sports or does that just draw attention to the wrong parts of it? Right. Like, yeah, on the one hand, if there aren't conversations about your experiences, then like, how would anybody ever know like what Aaron Andrews went through or, you know, like, like, here's the Aaron Andrews example. If you don't talk about Aaron Andrews and you don't like collect other experiences from from female reporters and then like don't know the detail of, you know, like one of them tapes band-aids over the keyhole at the hotel door, then like that's a pretty eye-opening detail that you otherwise don't have if you don't ask a female reporter, like what's it like to be a female and a reporter at the same time? But on the other hand, it's like exactly the point you just made, like when does it stop being I'm a female reporter and just be like, I'm a reporter? Right. When do the conversations like stop being useful? And that is a great question, one that I have not been able to answer because I go back and forth about it. I mean, I think earlier in my career, I was all about, I didn't really want to focus on that. You don't want to dwell on it. You just want to do your job. And then I think as you become older and you encounter different things and you sort of want to know that maybe you're not the only one experiencing these things or thinking these things or, or you just sort of want to share them, um, I think that's when you sort of think it's it's good to talk about them. And I think that's kind of where I fall is that I think it's good to share some experiences because I, I think people think that's like, they think that like the women's movement is over. Like they think sexism <laughs> is over. And I'm like, right, but right. it's like, it's really not. And like it, <laughs> it's maybe like worse now because it's, it's always like, it's like this latent sexism that like gets you without people acknowledging that it's there. And so you use the example. So Richard Deitch had done the round table after the Aaron Andrews ruling. And that's where you had mentioned the, the putting the band-aids over the people. Yeah, and he yeah. talked to several female reporters. So he did a similar round table about a year ago and it was women sports uh, reporters under 30. And like, what's it sort of like? Um, and he asked a lot of candid questions. And one of them was, you know, do you feel like your compensation is equivalent to men? And I can't say for sure. I don't know the salaries of everyone that I've made, but I've long suspected that it wasn't. And also, I think the bigger issue is which is that women are less often promoted to more senior roles. So I I said, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to say that, that at that point in time, there were no uh, female senior writers at Sports Illustrated. And... You know, that fact uh, in time sort of bothered me because there's so many qualified women in the business who have worked hard and worked their way up. And I couldn't really understand how you have a staff of, I don't know, 26 or 28 there were at the time, no females. So I wrote that on an SI platform and it definitely got noticed. And, you know, then a couple months later, uh, they promoted me to senior writer and it's sort of hard not to wonder how much of that is because what I said publicly and that, (laughs) you know, and I I know I worked hard and I'm not like, I wasn't thinking I don't deserve it, but I do think a factor in that was saying it publicly. So in that case, is it good to speak out? I guess so. Yeah. But then it's, you know, then you sort of, you have mixed feelings about it, I think. Right. But do you think that, you know, a male sports writer who writes an article that gets him a lot of attention and then gets him some razor promotion or like what have you do you think he sits around and is like I wonder if this is because of that one article probably not probably not (laughs) but that's probably I guess I guess any more confident person would probably not think that I'm sure there's some women that wouldn't think that either well yeah I mean it's uh, you know once again like sports is universal you know like those are the same exact issues that I think women like every day are navigating you know, I saw like, so they had that a women's career symposium uh, last week, right before the owners meetings. And I saw that one of the panels was something along the lines of, you know, like handling tough situations. And I sort of, I mean, that one kind of stuck out to me because I wondered like, 
okay, like I get it, navigating difficult situations or whatever the new right, and and right. that is part of being a woman. But then again, that would not have been on a panel that was just for general career opportunities in the NFL, right? Like that was targeted toward women. And maybe you need it because you are navigating some more difficult situations. But then the fact that you need it was sort of so again, that double edged right. sword. Right. Well I guess that the question is like, is there an equivalent panel about like how to avoid creating a tough situation. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's true. And you know what? Right. I think there should be. I think there should be. I, I, and and in all seriousness, I think that's a great point. Yeah. Well, so you also remind me, um, uh, a couple episodes ago, I talked to a number of women who were sort of in like the uh, like immediate post-college years a couple of them, it kept coming up that they felt like they sort of had a couple of women who they could name who were mentors to them at maybe like the level above them. But then like you were saying, when they went to like the really senior people, they were like, those people are all still men. They were sort of feeling like, but maybe I'm like the generation that's going to break through that. Like maybe, maybe we're on like this second wave where will get beyond like the one promotion to the kind of most senior roles. Do you feel a similar sentiment or like a similar movement or anything like that? Yeah. But hearing that is kind of depressing thinking that in like 2016, we would still be at a point where we're hoping we're the generation that changes that. You know, when I did that panel with, with Richard Deitch about, you know, being a, a, a woman under 30, one of the other questions was, have you ever had a, a female um, boss? And, yeah. and I had never even thought about the fact that I have not. Every editor mm-hmm. I have ever had has been male. You know, you hope that maybe there are aspiring sports writers in college who say, okay, like I, I see women covering the NFL. I think the more of us there are, the better it becomes more normal. It just becomes more, you know, it's just, it's sort of automatic that it, it's a career possibility. Um, but it's still at the point where it's some, it, 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 it's enough of a novelty that when people ask you what your job is, they ask you how you got into it, which I don't think they would be asking a guy. Do you feel a sense of personal responsibility to like become an editor or become somebody who can make those decisions or do you think that that's like in itself a sexist idea of like why should there be an extra burden on women to make it better for women I mean there's a lot of things in this job that you sort of feel a responsibility toward I mean I think the biggest thing you feel a responsibility toward is telling the stories of the people that trust you to tell them and telling them accurately I most worry about trying to do my job the right way and then I guess you know if if other people see you in that role and that's something that they also aspire to and you know they just see maybe just even seeing your name as a byline I mean I think that's a good thing I guess this business is a little different because it's almost like there's two separate tracks like there's people who want to report and write for their whole careers and then there's people who want to edit and so I've always kind of wanted to report and write but I think you know on our staff uh, Peter King, as uh, you know, he when he built the staff, he said he wanted to have a diverse staff with a variety of viewpoints. He wasn't scared of hiring younger people. Mm-hmm. He wanted to hire women. He wanted to hire people of different ethnic backgrounds, and he's definitely done that. So you hear that, and part of you thinks, okay, like did I only get the job because I'm a woman? Which kind of goes back to the whole Rooney Rule question: Did I only get the interview because I'm a minority or because I'm a woman? Right. Um, But then, you know, you think, okay, well, if we don't make an effort to do this, then nothing's really going to change. So I think at the end of the day, my takeaway is, okay, like, it's good that someone in this business cares and that they, they're trying to break down some of the barriers in hiring. But I don't know, to your point about like, you know, did I get this because I was a woman? Like, well, does it matter? Like, if you're there and you're doing it, Right. Does it just become a moot point? Yeah. And I think that's, like you said, you sort of have to get past that because, you know, you, people get jobs for all kinds of different reasons. And so yeah. I think you view it as an opportunity and I'm going to make the most of the opportunity and that's that. Yeah. Well, man, I mean, I'm sure we'll still be talking about all this stuff in the next like year, five years at the 100th Super Bowl anniversary. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> 
Um, okay, the very, very last thing I want to ask you about is that another fun fact <laughs> about you is that you're actually a really great meme on the internet because of your facial reaction behind Jerry Jones when he was talking about the leadership qualities of Greg Hardy. So how does it feel to be internet famous? You know, that, I, I've gotten more comments about that than any story I've ever written, hands down. It's, it's I, and I never expected, I mean, I, I got a lot of comments. There was one, uh, Actually, another NFL team owner uh, said to me that he was like, I was so glad to see that because, you know, it was it was sort of the perfect response. It was what we were all thinking and you didn't have to say a word. And then he said that um, he's been told in negotiations that he has the worst poker face, too. So that was kind of a a funny reaction. But, um, you know, it it was interesting because if you do something that's critical of something in the NFL, a lot of times there's backlash. And obviously that was sort of just an impromptu reaction. I had no idea it was being caught on camera. But I will say that the reactions that I got from I heard from, I don't know, PR directors, coaches, owners, players, and they all said like, we're so glad your face said that because I think a lot of people with the Greg Hardy situation sort of were wondering, you know, why why does this person get a second chance? And I guess that maybe that was a little bit refreshing to hear that. I don't know, it was sort of a shift, right? That to hear these people saying like, hear teams <laughs> saying, well, at least here's, at least finally, you know, we're not going to touch this guy. And it might be for whatever reason, it might be for public perceptions, but at least attitudes were starting to shift. But there, Even though the Cowboys gave him a second chance, <laughs> there were so many teams right. around the league that would never have done that. Well, maybe you were, you know, not the side eye that football wanted, but the side eye that football needed. <laughs> there you go. That was, that was, that was a, that was a side eye. Yeah. That was a, oh man. <laughs> All right. Well, Jenny, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. No, this was Um, great. I enjoyed talking with you too. Thank you so much. Yeah. Well, uh, so as I say on the show to all my guests, good game, Jenny. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Thanks so much. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Jenny for joining us. As always, you can follow us. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Jenny for joining us. As always, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at NYBF Sports. We're on Facebook at Not Your Boyfriend Sports Show. Or please shoot us an email at nybfsports at gmail.com. Good game, everyone. Good game, everyone.